You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 72 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchot, and this is show number 72, the show for September 2019. Well, we have a solo show for you this month. Um, I'm going to talk to you about a group of things in the sky that a lot of us may not think about, but are actually quite interesting camera fodder as and when opportunity arrives. So what I'm talking about is the broad category of atmospheric optics. So these are basically light shows put on for us by the atmosphere. Now, by their nature, they're not predictable. You can't plan to photograph a specific atmospheric phenomenon at a specific time. But you can prepare to be alert for them, to know what to look for, and to then be able to snap them when opportunity arrives. Because if you don't notice them, you definitely can't snap them. And if you've never thought about it, then even if you do notice them, you're not going to be particularly well prepared to try have a go. So I think it's worth being more aware of the cool stuff that could be there in the sky at any moment in time. And now that we all have camera phones, which are good cameras, we really can just you know, snap a picture of something completely unexpected at pretty much any time now, which is really quite the luxury. Okay, so let's let's start easy. Let's start with the single most obvious and most commonly noticed atmospheric optical phenomenon, the good old-fashioned rainbow. So to get a rainbow, you need to have sunlight shining through raindrops of an appropriate and uniform size. And what's actually happening is the light is reflecting around on the inside surfaces of the raindrop and that's splitting the light up into the spectrum of colours and we get the the beautiful, it's actually a full circle, but usually the, the bottom part of the circle is is hitting the ground so it doesn't stand out to our eye. Um, a rainbow will always appear exactly opposite the sun in the sky. So if the sun is high up in the sky, then the entire rainbow will be below the horizon. So you're not going to see it unless you're standing on a pure white surface or something. Uh, and there's going to be extremely little atmosphere, you know, within which the raindrops can exist. So even if you could see it, it would then be an extremely, extremely dim rainbow because there aren't enough raindrops for the, for the effect to take hold. So really, when the sun's high in the sky, you're not going to see a rainbow. Um, what you might get if the sun is at just the right level in the sky, you could in theory get a rainbow sitting right on the horizon, which is kind of cool. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so that you know, the fact that it appears directly opposite the sun means that the best times for rainbows are in the afternoon and the morning. So basically, in the hours before and after sunset. Um, and obviously what you need is some sort of showery weather where you have both sunshine and raindrops hanging in the air at the same time. And of course, the sun will be behind you and the raindrops need to be in front of you and then you can get a rainbow. So the sun is coming from behind you, passes by you, hits the raindrops in front of you, reflects around inside the raindrops and then comes back to your eye where it then creates the optical illusion that is the rainbow. So... It's, you know, so you have to have sun behind you, raindrops in front of you, and the raindrops need to be of an appropriately uniform size so the effect can build up. Because if you don't have uniform drops, then 
yes, every raindrop is going to be messing with the light, but it won't be messing in the light any sort of coherent way. Whereas when all the drops are the same size, the effect magnifies and then you can actually get something your eye can actually see. Um, there's a lot more going on in a rainbow than the old Richard of York of Battle in Vain uh, or Orgy Behavior or whatever, uh, making very easy mo- no, wait, making very easy money. That's the planets one that doesn't work. Um, yes, no, Richard of York of Battle in Vain. You know th- those colors we know. So red is on the outside, violet is on the inside, and the colors work their way down from there. There's there's really only six of them, but uh, Newton was a bit of a, a bit of well, he was into magic and stuff, um, and he wanted there to be seven because seven was a powerful number. So hey presto, purple got split into indigo and violet. It's purple anyway. That's that's I get off my soapbox now. Uh, so that's the obvious thing to look for is just the plain old rainbow. But if you look a little bit more closely when you're standing in front of your next rainbow, um, notice that the sky is very noticeably different in brightness on the inside versus the outside of the rainbow. The inside is artificially bright. And that's because the light has basically been scattered preferentially into that part of the sky from your point of view. So there is actually more light there. It's not that you're imagining it. It is genuinely brighter and that will be captured in photographs. Uh, You may also then have a secondary bow which is a rainbow outside the primary rainbow. And those will have their colours in the same order, but in the other direction. So basically the the red will touch, the, the red and the red will be next to each other, if you think about it. So the primary bow has red on top, and then the secondary bow has red on the bottom. And so the same order again, but you're going up instead of down this time. Um. The other thing you may notice is that just like the inside of the primary rainbow is artificially bright, the gap between the primary and the secondary is artificially dark because that's actually where the light has come from that's been scattered into the inside of the primary bow. So the light outside the secondary bow is sort of normal, the actual brightness of the sky. Then the light between the primary and secondary is moved to inside the primary. So that's artificially dim and the inside is artificially bright. And then the final thing I want to draw your attention to in terms of your traditional rainbow is something called supernumerary arcs or supernumerary bows. And those are extra bands of the rainbow disconnected from the main rainbow on the inside. So in other words, beyond violet. And they will almost certainly have pastel colours, you'll see them described as pinks or greens or purples. They'll be very subtle in their colour. And these are extra reflections of the light. Um, And the really cool thing is that they are unexplainable by classical mechanics. You need quantum mechanics, you need the wave nature of light in order to get these to be able to explain these very obviously visible, if conditions are right, supernumerary bows. So I always get a little thrill out of seeing them because they're only possible because, you know, Newton didn't know it all, which is nice. Uh, Something else to say when it comes to rainbows, the sun is the most obvious um, source of rainbows, um, but the sun is by no means the only source of rainbows because, of course, the moon, especially if it's a full moon, can have enough light to produce a rainbow as well. So even at night time, 
keep an eye out for moonbows, as they're called, which is basically a rainbow uh, by moonlight. And then from a practical photography point of view, um, I've popped a link into the show notes to an example photograph uh, to illustrate my point here. But rainbows are quite large. So if you're using a DSLR or whatever, you're going to want a wide angle lens. But even that may not be wide enough to capture the whole bow, in which case I guess you have the choice of you can zoom in and where where the bow meets the ground. Um, and that then you could, you know, move around a bit until the bow meets the ground at some sort of point of interest and you can make a cool photograph, you know, rainbow landing on some sort of building. You can make an ironic point, a fun point, just a cool shot. Um, or take a pano, either, you know, by panoramic stitching with a traditional camera, as in you take separate photographs, bring them home and stitch them in post, or with our modern camera phones, be that an iPhone or an Android, they almost all have a good panorama mode these days. And, you know, as, as an iPhone user myself, I can attest to the fact that the iPhone's panorama mode is superb. Well, you can use that to very easily capture your full rainbow. Um, so I have a link in the show notes to a shot I took, um, I think it was well, the year before last, February 2017, on actually my iPhone 6S so a while ago. And it shows a rainbow um, over some buildings at Maynooth University. And of course, it also shows the effect that the rainbow is always directly behind the sun, which means that if you can find some shadows, the shadows will always point to the center of the rainbow. And that can make for a really cool composition. So in this case, because it was February, the trees had no leaves yet. I was able to get really nice tree reflections pointing right into the rainbow, which is framing our then brand spanking new education building in Maynooth University. So as I say, link in the show notes of that photograph, but as I say, panorama mode is definitely your friend when it comes to capturing rainbows. Okay, so next on the list are halos. Now, halos are actually way more common than rainbows, but they're also more subtle and uh, perhaps less photogenic, less dramatic. Um, There's a link in the show notes to a diagram showing all of the most common halos. Um, Really, the the central one to get used to keeping an eye out for is the so-called 22-degree halo. So if you can imagine wherever the sun is in the sky... If there are halos that day, then the 22 degree halo will always will be the most prominent of the halos. And uh, that will be at 22 degrees away from the sun. Now, degrees, we, we measure things on the sky in degrees. So the whole sky is 360 degrees around. So 22 degree radius, what does that mean? Well, there's a really handy rule of thumb which is that if you hold your fist out at arm's length, it it is approximately 10 degrees wide. So approximately two fist widths is 22 degrees. So if you imagine where the sun is and you go one fist, two fist, that's the distance out from the sun at which you would expect to see the 22 degree halo if it's about. Um, These halos are caused not by raindrops, but by ice crystals high in the sky. And depending on the shape of the crystals and how nicely they're lined up in the atmosphere, you'll get some of these different uh, halos. But the easiest one to make and the one that will generally be the brightest is the 22 degree halo. Um, Now, there's another halo that runs through, it basically runs around the middle of the sky through the center of the sun. It's called the parahelic circle. And that's usually quite dim and not that easy to see. 
But at the point where, at the two points, where the parahelic circle meets the 22 degree halo, that's the points where you get sun dogs. So the sun dogs are actually the intersection of two halos. And if you've never seen a sun dog, there'll be a bright patch in the sky, which if conditions are good enough, will actually be rainbow colored. Um, they're sort of tadpole shaped with the head of the tadpole pointing towards the sun. And because they're at this intersection between the parahe- between the pari- puh, excuse me, parahelic circle and the 22 degree halo, they're always going to be 22 degrees out from the sun. And so if you see one, check on the other side and you may very well see the other. And if you see them, well, then imagine a circle between them. And that is where you would look for the 22 degree halo. Um. Yeah, I quite, you know, I have seen a few sundogs. I haven't managed to capture a particularly nice photograph of a sundog yet. Um, but I, you know, I keep an eye out and I keep hoping I'll get one someday. Uh, and also note that the moon can produce the same halos the sun can. I have actually, I didn't have a camera with me. And at that stage, phone cameras would never have done the trick. But I did once see moon dogs really bright uh, when I was visiting Belgium, actually, on a particularly frosty night when we had obviously a lot of ice crystals in the atmosphere. It was extremely cool. Um, the next thing then is very much related to the halos because they're also caused by ice crystals. Um, these actually I should mention, sorry, um, before we move on away from halos, let's mention a few of the other halos. So the 22 degree halo and the sun dogs are, they're by far the most common. In fact, the only two I have ever actually seen with my own eyes are the 22 degree halo and uh, the sun dogs. In fact, the 22 degree halo I have seen around the moon more often than around the sun because in Ireland, we tend to have cold, frosty air at night, which means that the moon is what's your light source when you have the ice crystals. And so I have seen lots of 22 degree halos around the moon, but not that many around the sun. Um, but as I say, the uh, the sun dogs are definitely worth keeping an eye out for. So those are the most common of the halos, but they're not the only halos. So if you manage to spot one of the halos, then take a moment to see if you can spot some of the rarer halos as well, because if there's one lot of halos out, there could be the others out. So the easiest one to keep an eye out for, and one that seems to be sort of brighter and more obvious, is called the Upper Tangent Arc. And that will exist at the point directly above the sun at the basically at the top of the 22 degree halo and it will look like a set of horns which may be slightly rainbowed in color sort of crowning the top of the 22 degree halo um so that's it's a tangent arc so you can imagine a circle touching the top of the 22 degree halo it's yeah i haven't seen it with my own eyes i've seen photographs of it and it's quite pretty um there's also a lower tangent arc which is Obviously, only if the sun is more than 22 degrees up in the sky. And then another one to keep an eye out for, and it's it's one where you're never going to have to wonder where in the sky it is. It's called the circumzenithal arc. And if you know your Latin root words, the zenith is the point directly over your head. It will appear straight overhead and it will have rainbow colors. So it'll be basically an arc in the sky pointing towards the sun straight above your head with the rainbow colours. I have not seen one myself. I've seen photographs of them and they look extremely pretty. Okay, so now we really will move on to pillars, which are very, very much related to halos because pillars are also caused by ice crystals. 
Uh, in this case, they're caused by flat ice crystals, and the physics of it is nice and easy to imagine. In your head, you have the sun low down in the sky, perhaps even completely below the horizon from your point of view. Light is obviously shining from the sun in all directions, and if there are flat ice crystals in the sky and they are lined up approximately horizontal in the atmosphere, then they will reflect the light from the sun back towards you. And so they, what you will get is a vertical shaft of light coming up from the setting sun, the rising sun, or the just set or about to rise sun. Uh, they can be quite dim, so you may need a tripod and uh, some careful exposure to capture them, but they're certainly very pretty to the human eye when you can see them. And I have managed to capture one photograph of a faint sun pillar back in 2009, so I've popped a link in the show notes there. Uh, I didn't really have the best lens for the job. Um, I just sort of spotted it out of the side of my eye and went for it. So in the photograph, it is it is only really noticeable if I tell you to look. Basically, it's a third in, uh, sort of a third in from the left edge of the frame. You'll see this, this vertical line coming up from the horizon. The sun had already completely set at that point and it wasn't a particularly bright pillar. Um, I was really there to shoot the sunset colours and then I just sort of noticed the pillar and did my best to capture it but didn't come out all that well I hope to have another go you know when chance arrives these things can only happen by chance so next on the list then are glories and these are rainbow like concentric circles of bright patches that appear directly opposite the sun sort of like a bullseye target in rainbow very cool looking um you really only get to see them if you are high up because they appear at the point directly opposite the sun. And so you need a line from the sun through your head to your eyeballs. And so if you're in an airplane, that's quite easy for that to happen. Um, I've managed to take actually a beautiful photograph of one back in 2009. Actually, was it? No, it wasn't 2009. My apologies. It was 2016 on a flight from Brussels home to Dublin. And it was just visible plain as day below the airplane wing. Um, I think it was a morning flight. Uh, So the sun was still low in the sky. I was up high in the airplane. And the glory was projected onto the cloud deck. Um, below me so you can imagine that the the sunlight was directly behind me so if you have a choice when you're booking airline seats try sit on the side opposite the sun because that's when you get to see all the cool atmospheric phenomena um so as i say the link in the show notes of the photograph i took back in 2016 so you get sort of an idea what they look like you can also get glories on mountain tops so if you're standing atop a large mountain and the sun is shining down on you then if you look sort of down into the valley you may see a glory perhaps projected on cloud tops again if you're above the cloud layer. Um, But if you're on a mountain, you can have an even cooler effect. Or you can also get this on an airplane if the cloud deck that you're seeing the glory projected onto is close to you. So in my example, the cloud deck is a long way below where we were flying. So you just see the halo. But if the cloud deck was nearer the plane, you would see the shadow of the plane smack dab in the center of the halo. Because, of course, the halo is at exactly the anti-solar point, the point directly opposite the sun. Now, if you're standing on a mountain, then your own shadow is going to be visible stretching out in front of you towards the halo. And that's something called a Brocken Spectre. And it can look like this really weird monster with a halo on top. It's particularly cool. 
Um, so as I say, particularly on airplanes, unless you're a mountaineer, um, particularly airplanes is the place to keep an eye out for glories. And they can be extremely rewarding if you spot one and very, very easy to capture. You know, I just snapped that with my iPhone. It didn't take any effort at all. It was so easy to do. So they're definitely one to keep an eye out for while you're traveling. And the next on my list then are so-called crepuscular rays. Um, these are those very cinematographic sort of rays of light radiating down from clouds. So they occur when a cloud allows a shaft of sunlight or multiple thin shafts of sunlight to shine through and the atmosphere is hazy enough that those shafts become clearly visible. Because of the fact that they're all coming from the sun, all the rays in a crepuscular ray will point back towards where the sun is in the sky, even if it's behind the clouds, which it almost certainly is if you're seeing the rays. Uh, but that gives you that sort of a wonderful fan effect as the rays fan out. Um, they can be a little bit difficult to capture, but they can be so pretty when you succeed. I have a link in the show notes to a photograph I took way back in 2009 of what I, the most spectacular display of crepuscular rays I've ever managed to photograph. It was just a, a massive chunk of the sky. I needed to take it as a panorama even to capture them all. It was it was a wonderful display. Um, so yeah, definitely keep an eye out for them. Now, while you're looking for crepuscular rays, so if you see crepuscular rays, they'll be where the sun is. So crep- crepuscular rays appear to come from the sun. And so if you're facing the sunset or, you know, in the, the low evening sun, you're going to see the crepuscular rays in the same direction as the sun. If you ever see crepuscular rays, Take a moment to turn around exactly 180 degrees and look exactly the opposite way because it's possible that on the horizon opposite the sun, there are other rays visible which appear to be converging instead of diverging and they're converging on the anti-solar point, the point directly opposite the sun. And these are so-called anti-crepuscular rays and you generally would only get them you know, around sunrise and sunset. But they are extremely cool because they're exactly the opposite side of the sky we'd expect to see them. And I think, basically, they happen a lot more than we realise, but we're, generally speaking, captivated by the rising or setting sun, and we don't turn around and look behind us when we're seeing a cool display. So if you ever see crepuscular rays, just make a mental note to turn around, look the other way, because you may be missing half the show. Okay, so second to last on my list of things to talk to you about are noctilucent clouds. These I'm not sure we, I'm not sure if they really fit as atmospheric ph- optical phenomena, but they're certainly atmospheric phenomena. So we'll 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 go with them. These are extremely delicate, very wispy clouds that are high up in the atmosphere, and they're too dim to see during daylight. Um, so you'll only get to see them sort of during late, late twilight when the sun has set for you on the ground, but it hasn't set far enough that the entire atmosphere is in shadow. And what you need to see noctilucent clouds is for all of the atmosphere apart from the very, very top layers of the atmosphere to be in shadow and the sun to be still catching that very, very top layer of our atmosphere where the, where the noctilucent clouds, or NLCs for short, hang out. Um, the easiest way to see them, or at least sort of the best time of year to see them for any prolonged period of time, are those long summer nights in the high latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere or the low latitude of the Southern Hemisphere. So, you know, anything above 50 degrees, I would start to say, is you're in NLC territory. So Ireland is very well placed for for NLCs. 
Uh, what you may notice in places like Ireland and I guess Canada and Scandinavia and much of Northern Europe, really, um, is that in the middle of the winter, so the few weeks around, sorry, in the middle of the summer, the few weeks around the summer solstice, um, the the sun does set, but it doesn't actually get fully dark. What you'll see is the sun sets and you have the glow left on the horizon and then the glow moves around through the north and then becomes sunrise and the sun rises again. But at no point was it ever fully dark. Well, during those few weeks of the year, your northern horizon for those long summer nights are the perfect place to see NLCs. So from 11pm onwards in sort of your July, August, I will always take a look outside, just check the northern horizon and just see if there's any NLCs. They will be low down. Um, they may be really quite spectacular, though. So I've managed to capture a few images. Um, so I've linked in the show notes to three of them. So the first image I have in the show notes is to a shot showing the Noctilucent cloud sort of in context. Um, it was a particularly nice display. Uh, I had time to jump on my bike and get myself to a pretty foreground, in this case, Tahado Round Tower and Church. And what I was able to capture and even get a bit of light painting done is the ruins of the church in the foreground, um, some stars above, and then these noctilucent clouds shimmering along that northern horizon. Um, in this case, there were some nice blues and oranges and some nice, nice subtle textures in the NLCs. But you'll see they're not big and they're low to the horizon. So that gives you an idea of sort of where these things appear in a bigger context. Um, the second shot I have then is also showing NLCs in a bigger context, but these were this was shot uh, at a different time, a few few weeks apart actually from the previous image. Um, again, this is a very wide angle shot showing the the NLCs in context, just hugging that northern horizon. Um, and then the final shot I have is a, a sort of a close in detail showing some of the structure in those NLCs. Um, it's the same NLCs from the previous. And you have the, you very, very often get a rippling, like sort of wind rippling, very, very fine silk is often the texture you'll get in NLCs. And so you, you see that in the, the close-up of the NLCs that I've linked in the show notes. So extremely beautiful. Um, definitely something I keep an eye out for every summer. And whenever I can, I try to capture them because they really do make for very pretty photographs if you can pull it off. The final um, item, I guess, on my list here today is, it definitely happens in the atmosphere and it's definitely optical, so I guess we'll count it. Anyway, I'm talking about aurorae. And so this is literally our atmosphere being turned into a fluorescent light bulb by high energy charged particles coming from the sun. Uh, coronal mass ejection, CMEs, you're going to get all scientific about it. And uh, these these are charged particles which have a lot of energy and when they interact with the upper atmosphere they make the upper atmosphere glow so it is literally like the gases inside a fluorescent light bulb are made to glow by the by the electricity put across those gases well here we have electrically charged particles causing our atmosphere to glow like to fluoresce it really is our night sky turning into a fluorescent light bulb and um, the different atoms in our atmosphere will fluoresce at different colors and so the most common, I can't remember which is which, but the most common, so one of them is obviously nitrogen, um, is red. The second most common is green. And then I know that it's, I 
I think I vaguely remember. I should have checked this before going off on a tangent. But anyway, different atoms make different colours. And one of the colours is purple, which is particularly pretty. And I think that might be oxygen. I think. So the greens and reds are always by far the most common. And the purples are when you start to get a bit more more of an impressive display. And, you know, so it's your nitrogen and your hydrogens are going to be the ones making the biggest show. And then your purples, I think, are oxygen, I think. Anyway, different elements, different colours. They can very often be seen to be moving at really quite surprisingly fast speeds, like a curtain flapping in the wind, or they may be more static. Um, Because we have a magnetic field, the particles from the sun wallop into the earth all over, but they don't hit the atmosphere all over. Our magnetic field extends beyond the atmosphere, but our magnetic field dips into the north and the south pole. And so effectively what our magnetic field does is it focuses all of these charged particles to the north and south poles. And so they are hitting the entire, or they're heading towards the entire surface of the Earth, but then the magnetic field catches them and funnels half of them north and half of them south, concentrates them, and then they smack into the atmosphere at the point where the magnetic field dips down into the poles. And if there's a small amount of charged particles, then the aurora will only cover a few miles around the actual pole. But the more charged particles you put in, the the, the effect begins to to spread further and further south. And so that, that's why if you're in, you know, the, the Arctic Circle, you see lots and lots of aurorae. Uh, if you're in Ireland, you see them from time to time. And if you're further south, you see them almost never. Um, and the, the, you have a mirror image of that then if you're down south. So the closer you are to the South Pole, you'll have the same effect happening. Um, the They are amazingly beautiful. Now, an annoying thing, well, not an annoying thing, it's just a thing. Um, the sun isn't constant. Our sun goes through an 11-year cycle, which is, well... Arguably, it's a 22-year cycle in two 11-year halves. But in terms of auroral activity, we see an 11-year cycle between lots of aurorae, very, very few aurorae, lots of aurorae, very, very few aurorae. Uh, So it's an 11-year cycle. We have solar maximum, solar minimum, solar maximum, solar minimum. And unfortunately, we're in a solar minimum at the moment. So this is a tip to stick in your back pocket and hold on to. Now, when we get the solar maximum, it's really worth keeping an eye on the space weather because that will tell you when there are coronal mass ejections heading our way. So we have satellites constantly observing the sun and they can see CMEs as they happen, coronal mass ejections as they happen. And that it takes days for these charged particles to make their way from the sun as far as the Earth. And we're now really good at predicting them. So we call that space weather, which is kind of a cool name. Uh, So we know in advance when we are extremely likely to have an auroral display. And so if you're prepared to pay a little bit of money for a subscription, you can actually subscribe to get proactive notifications of expected aurorae. And so while that's, you know, throwing good money after bad during a solar minimum, during a solar maximum, that genuinely is... I would argue, potentially worth spending money, especially if you live in that sort of border region where aurorae are possible, but they're not commonplace. And then you really do want a bit of a heads up, you know, so that you know to prepare and then you can be in a position if the meteorological weather allows to capture this really quite spectacular event. I have in my life only seen one truly dramatic auroral display and it was before I had gotten back into photography. So I didn't have the ability to capture. 
but it was literally horizon to horizon light show for an hour or two. And it was so bright that it was visible even from within streetlights. So you had people at the supermarket stopping in the car park and staring, you know, Joe on the ground at this amazing light show in the sky. I mean, truly stunning. If I'd had a camera, I would have gotten some amazing pictures. So I am still waiting for the next Solar Maximum where a spectacular display lines up with the Irish weather, lines up with my ability to be outside and capture it. So I have not yet captured a nice photograph of Aurora, but, you know, four or five years from now when the cycle picks up again, touch wood, fingers crossed, I'm definitely going to try again. Okay, well, that brings my whistle-stop tour of atmospheric optics to a close. I'm hoping I've inspired you to keep more of an eye out. And since we always have a camera with us now, pretty much... Whenever this happens, we now have a chance of capturing a really cool photograph. So, you know, ever-present vigilance, because if you're not keeping an eye out for these things, they may genuinely go unnoticed, and you could be missing out on some cool, fun stuff. Um, There are some links at the bottom of the show notes. Um, I really want to call out the first of those two links in particular. It's at at optics.co.uk is the name of the website. It, It has been around for a long time and looks like it was designed using some sort of 1990s web design product but despite the web design primitivity I've just made up a word but anyway um, the content is superb this page describes absolutely all of the atmospheric phenomenon I've just described and many many more it has lots of photographs it has all of the science and all of the physics explaining exactly how light bouncing around inside raindrops or bouncing off hexagonal ice crystals make 22 degree halos or rainbows or supernumerary bows or secondary bows or uh, we didn't even touch fog bows which is another thing that exists uh, glories crepuscular rays anti crepuscular rays halos They have absolutely all of it and more, all the science, all the photographs. It is such a cool site in terms of its actual content, even though its initial web design will turn you right off. Don't let it. The content is worth it. And then really, when the next Solar Maximum kicks into gear, I would recommend people start to check out spaceweather.com on a regular basis for two reasons. Firstly, their gallery gives you an idea of what's possible. You will see the most recent Aurora photographs and there are some immensely skilled people out there taking pictures of Aurora. Um, Amazing stuff. And then if you want to join the ranks of people taking pictures of Aurora, then spaceweather.com will A, just if you visit the website, it will just tell you what the space weather forecast is. Uh, But they also have a subscription service that they do charge for because they need to keep their servers going and stuff. Uh, And if you, it's not a huge fee, but there is a fee. Um, So if you sign up, they will then proactively send you, I think it's SMS notifications when there are Aurora forecast for whatever part of the world you tell them you want to be notified about. Um, I guess it goes by hemisphere, so it may not be that location specific now to think about it. Anyway, um, spaceweather.com is the go-to place for everything Aurora be it looking at pictures other people have taken, getting the current space weather forecast, or receiving proactive notifications the next time the solar cycle kicks up. So at optics.co.uk and spaceweather.com, definitely two important links. I've also peppered the show notes with links to the relevant Wikipedia articles for each of the items we've talked about. And there are links to Flickr photographs of mine showing some of the various phenomena in action. 
you will find all of those show notes at lets-talk.ie, which is the show's website. While you are there, you'll notice a banner that says support the show. Um, Please consider doing so. This show is 100% listener supported. Without your support, it would not exist. Um, I am at a situation at the moment in life where the simple plain fact of the matter is I cannot afford podcasting to cost me money it has to pay for itself or I need to do or I need to do something else with my time I I just can't have it costing me money now thankfully you guys have been great um the show is pretty much breaking even and the only time I sort of find myself a little bit tight for money for podcasting is when I need to buy new things uh, and last month I I said I needed a new piece of software and it would cost 100 euro and one of you amazing, amazing, amazing listeners went to the PayPal button and literally sent me 100 euros. So there should be less noise on this recording because it is being proactively cleaned out of it as I record. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, listener, for literally, I said I need 100 euro and 100 euro appeared. I mean, how much better do things get than that? You know, I'm so thankful. Um, In terms of ongoing support so there are monthly bills that have to be paid every month and the way those get paid is through patreon um so you sign up to patreon which is basically a way of becoming a patron of the podcasts you pledge a per episode amount so it will be exactly two episodes every month so if you would like to support me with five dollars a month then you pledge two dollars fifty if you'd like to support me with two dollars a month you pledge one dollar you get the basically two shows a month so whatever you'd like to pledge me a month divided by two make the pledge um it really, the Patreon support, every month there are bills, every month there's Patreon money, I take one, I pour it into the other, and they pretty much level out. It's not exact, but it's 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 fine. It's close enough. Uh, obviously, it would be a little bit more comfortable if there was a little bit more Patreon money than there were bills. Um, so that would allow me to more often pick up little utilities and apps that would be useful, little things I could experiment or review with, just little things to make podcasting better. And, you know, stuff does break, software goes out of support. There may, I may have an upcoming cost shortly with macOS Catalina, the Levelator, which is a free app many, many podcasters, including me, use to normalize audio. That is not 64-bit and macOS Catalina is 64-bit only, so unless there's some sort of software update for this mostly abandoned product, I may need to spend money on an actual professional uh, audio leveling app, in which case I may be making another bit of an appeal. But anyway, I'm waffling, so I shall stop waffling. To all of you who have supported the show with the PayPal button or by being a Patreon patron, thank you ever so much. There are also affiliate links for those of you who are nerdy enough to wish to register domain names. You can use the uh, hover.com referral link. Or if you are even nerdier and need um, virtual hosting or virtual machines, those kind of things, then you can get those from DigitalOcean using my referral code. And the DigitalOcean referral code is really cool because not only do I get a little bit of of commission for sending you their way, once you spend your first 50 euro with DigitalOcean, you get free hosting credit and I get free hosting credit. Um, and I've had quite a few months of the podcast actually hosted for free because of people using that affiliate link. So thank you to those who have. And if you need hosting of some sort, please consider using that affiliate link in the future. You'll get free money and I'll get free money. And that that's nice. And then just the final thing to say, you do not need to spend a penny to support this show. 
tell your friends, tweet about it, review us in your podcaster of choice. All of those things are helpful. And frankly, they're helpful in that order. Telling someone is more valuable than tweeting or posting about it is more valuable than reviewing in the app stores. Because contrary to popular belief, all of the research implies that the ratings have no bearing on where you appear in Apple's charts. Um, I only learned that recently, thanks to another podcast I, I listened to. Uh, but it turns out that the reviews on, on the podcast app are quite meaningless and really what matters is downloads, not reviews. So telling your friends is way more useful than reviewing me in iTunes. So there you go. That's a piece of trivia for the end. Anyway, I am going to leave it at that. You can find me at bartb.ie. Reminder again, show notes at lets-talk.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hey, David, this week on TechFan, let's talk about Apple. Uh, don't like it. Yeah, okay. Uh, Windows? We can talk about Windows. Boring! Um... Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of cool things in 3D printing going on. We could we could talk really? about cool. Uh, I don't think so. I, I, what about like the uh, Raspberry Pi? We've we've discussed that in the past. It's tech fan. No, uh, you're you're just being difficult now. What do you want to talk about this week on Tech Fan? How about we talk about Apple and then a little bit about Microsoft and then the Raspberry Pi? You suck.